Everyone seems to Twitter these days. (laughs) So it's no surprise to see a preacher try it with the gospel. For those of you who don't Twitter, like me, I don't, a Twitter message is limited to 140 characters. So here's one attempt, and I'm not going to mention the name, by a popular pastor of a mega church here in the United States of America to Twitter the gospel. The gospel is the counterintuitive, joyous, exuberant news that Jesus has brought the unending, limitless, stunning love of God to even us. The problem is that's not the gospel. Sounds good, though, doesn't it? But it's not the gospel. It is a popular message today, but it is not the gospel. It is a message that lots of people like to preach, and it is a message that fills lots of churches, but it is not the gospel. People today want a bloodless gospel that preaches love without sacrifice and faith without repentance. Many churches and preachers today avoid talking about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Some tell us that you shouldn't even sing songs about the blood of Jesus Christ like we have sung today because it will be offensive to people. Yet that is the essence of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ redeemed us by his blood. The gospel is not just a feel-good love story, but a bloody sacrifice for sin. And this is Holy Week as we celebrate Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. We need to remember that the gospel defined in 1 Corinthians 15, is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again the third day to guarantee our eternal life. That's the gospel. His blood sacrifice to pay for our sins is at the heart of that good news. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Hebrews 9, chapter chapter 9, verses 11 to 14 this morning is where we pick up in our study of this epistle. And that gets to the heart of Holy Week and the central theme of the book of Hebrews. These verses are at the core of the argument of this epistle to the Hebrews. And here we learn, first of all, that the blood of Christ qualifies him to be our priest. Verse 11, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, as we saw last Sunday... The high priest of Israel entered the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He was not allowed into God's holy presence 
without making a blood sacrifice for sins. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the, of the nation of Israel, of the people. In Hebrews 9 and verse 7, we're told that he could not ever enter the tent, the tabernacle, without blood, without a blood sacrifice. For a blood sacrifice was required as payment for their sins. So, the high priest would first kill an animal, a calf, a goat, on the altar outside of the tent. He would sacrifice that animal on that altar, and he would collect the blood, and he would take it into the tent, and into the inner tent, the Holy of Holies, And there he would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat, which was over the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this last Sunday. And there he would make atonement. First he would do it for his own sins, and then he would go and do it once again for the sins of the people. For it was a blood atonement that paid for their sins. It is the only way that they could be right with God in the Old Testament. This was a substitutionary atonement, if you will. And this concept of a substitutionary atonement is at the heart of salvation. Humans have sinned. The penalty of sin is what? Death. The sacrificial animal was the substitute to satisfy God's justice for the sins of the people. The animal died in place of the person. It was a substitute. The animal was sacrificed. The blood of the animal then atoned for the sins of the people. As God's law stipulated, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Literally, the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Now, that's the background For what we are reading about Jesus Christ in these verses. Jesus Christ is our high priest of all the coming good things, he says. If you look back at verse 10, we read, since they, that is the the old way, since those things, those regulations, only relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. The law, the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up until the time of the new order in Jesus Christ. Now that Christ has come, we have a new order. This is the time of reformation. When Christ has come, when Christ came, he began that new order. And so he arrives as our high priest of the coming good things. And he entered once and for all into the greater and perfect, more complete tent that is not made with hands. This tabernacle is not of this creation, we are told. This tabernacle is not of this world. It is not an earthly tabernacle at all. This is the heavenly tabernacle, and Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle as our high priest. 
And you look over at verse 24 of this chapter, because eventually we'll get there, but verse 24 of chapter 9, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we are talking here about the heavenly tent, the heavenly tabernacle where Christ entered, having made atonement for the sins of the people. Now, the Old Testament high priest could only enter the earthly tabernacle with the blood of goats and calves and bulls, having paid for the sins of the people. He took that blood with him into the holy place and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat as a substitute for our sins, for their sins, I should say. Jesus Christ has entered the heavenly holy place, but not on the basis of the blood of goats. He entered the heavenly holy place on the basis of his own blood. He is not just the high priest, he's the sacrifice too. He paid for the sins as our substitute. His sacrifice for sins qualifies him to be our high priest then in the heavenly tabernacle that is not made with hands. It is by this blood atonement on the cross that he obtained our redemption. He bought us back. Redemption is a commercial term. It's a business term. He purchased us. He bought us back by the payment And the cost of that, the price of that payment for you and me, was his blood on the cross. It is by his blood atonement that he obtained our redemption. That redemption is not temporary like it was in the Old Testament. It is eternal. It is forever. He purchased our redemption And that redemption, your redemption, is an eternal redemption. It is a permanent payment that Christ made for our sins. Unlike the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament, which constantly had to be repeated, this was a permanent, eternal redemption. And that is why Christ is supreme as high priest over the priests of Israel. Now, in the book of Revelation, we get a glimpse of this heavenly tabernacle, this heavenly holy place, and we read that the 24 elders fell down and they worshiped Jesus Christ, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase, that's the redemption concept, and didst purchase for God with what? With thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus purchased us for God. Redemption is a purchase. He bought us. He redeemed us. And he did it by his blood. And because of that blood redemption, Jesus is worthy. Worthy are you because of your blood redemption of us. To receive our honor and praise. He is worthy to be our heavenly high priest. His blood sacrifice qualified him to be our priest and make us right with God, just as the blood sacrifice of the Old Testament priests qualified them to make their people right and to represent their people as high priest. Now I need to stop for just a minute and correct a misunderstanding about the blood of Christ that has been taught by many, I think, out of a misguided sense of zeal 
for honoring Christ. The teaching is that the literal blood of Christ is indestructible and is eternal and is eternally preserved in heaven. It is taught that Jesus had to follow the Old Testament pattern and so he took with him his literal blood to heaven and he sprinkled it on the heavenly mercy seat. And his literal blood is eternal and indestructible being held in heaven to wash sinners of their sins. Now, that teaching is wrong on a couple of counts. First, the text does not say that Jesus entered the holy place with his blood. The Greek is very, very careful here. Jesus did not carry his blood to heaven in the same way that the Old Testament priests carried the blood into the Holy of Holies. Jesus did not scoop up his blood from the ground around the cross or the streets of Jerusalem or Pilate's torture chamber and carry it with him to heaven. The text says that it was through his blood or on account of or on the basis of his blood that he entered the heavenly holy place. Jesus was qualified to enter that heavenly holy place on the basis of his shed blood which he paid for our sins. Second, the literal red blood cells from Jesus' human body do not exist forever. Uh, That kind of woodenly literal doctrine that it really borders on, on an ancient heresy called docetism. And in docetism, Jesus' body and blood were not really human. They were extra-human. They were God. And so they exist forever. And so, literally, his, his blood and his body were not like human blood and body. Well, that's not true. The point of the scriptures is that Jesus had a human body just like you and me. And his blood was just like yours and mine. And he died a physical death just like we die. His blood was part of that normal human body. It does not literally, the literal red blood cells do not exist forever. When Jesus rose from the grave, he rose with a new and glorified body, which foreshadows our new and glorified bodies yet to come. So his literal red blood cells do not exist eternally in heaven. What we should proclaim, however, is that the blood of Christ was absolutely necessary for salvation. He had to redeem us. He had to die a bloody death. He had to make a blood payment for sin. And that blood payment qualified him to save us. And his blood sacrifice is the only way we can be right with God. He is our substitute for sin. And the sacrifice was then a substitutionary sacrifice. There's no other way to be right with God but by the blood of Jesus Christ as payment for our sins. And that's not a popular teaching today, is it? 
People do not want to hear the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and his bloody sacrifice as paying God for our sins. In August 2009, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, so just last year, conducted a survey to explore the overlap between religions and other supernatural beliefs. A quarter of those surveyed, 25%, said they were only able to find spiritual fulfillment by attending the services of several denominations. 65% showed evidence of adhering to contradictory religious beliefs. So in addition to believing the message of the Bible, 65% of those who claimed to be Christians also believed in reincarnation, astrology, seances, ghosts, psychics, the power of the evil eye, and yoga as a religion. Alan Cooperman, a member of the Pew Forum research team, concluded mixing and matching practices and beliefs is much more the norm than the exception today. Scott Thuma, professor of sociology of religion at the Hartford Institute for Religious Research, said, today the individual rarely finds all their spiritual needs in one religion. Let's take them all. Let's pick and choose. It's a giant cafeteria of religion out there. And you pick and choose what you like and what you want based upon how it makes you feel. I mean, the point is we've got to be happy, right? God wants us to be happy. So we'll pick and choose whatever we like from the various religions so that we can be happy. Because that's what this is all about, right? Well, not according to God. I mean, we are living in a, in a day where even Christians don't want to talk about the blood of Christ being the only way to God. We want religious substitutes, as long as they make us feel better about our life right now. In November 2004, Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago joined 15 other hospitals around the country experimenting with the use of a synthetic blood substitute. According to the Medical Center spokesman Stephen Davidow, Loyola would equip their medic transport helicopter and ambulances with this synthetic blood substance. Unlike real blood, the fluid does not contain any oxygen, of course, so patients would risk organ damage. While the benefits have been validated in hospital settings, the experimental mobile use of the fake blood will attempt to save the lives of trauma patients before they get to the hospital because blood has a, real blood has a very short lifespan, so they can't keep it. But this can exist for much longer, and the synthetic blood product is capable of sustaining life at, at least temporarily. Well... When it comes to the blood of Christ, there is no substitute. I mean, real blood, there's really no substitute either, though temporarily the synthetic blood could make a difference. But when it comes to the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no substitute. There's no other way. There's no substitute. Even 2,000 years of animal sacrifices weren't capable of producing what the blood of Christ alone can accomplish. And that leads us to the next point in verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 9. The blood of Christ purifies our souls from sin. Verse 13, 
4. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the power of the blood of Christ right there. And that's the heart of the gospel. Once again, the author, writing to Jewish Christians, looks back to the Old Testament sacrificial system to explain why they shouldn't go back to putting their faith in that system, but should put their faith in Christ alone for salvation. And Once again, he compares the blood of Christ to the blood of bulls and goats. And he goes on to talk about the ashes of a heifer that are sprinkled on those who have become defiled or polluted. That refers to a specific ceremonial cleansing that was prescribed under the law called the ceremony of the red heifer in Numbers chapter 19. So a red heifer was chosen and sacrificed on the altar and was consumed, was burned up on the altar, but they collected the ashes of the red heifer. And then they would save those ashes in a repository so that it could be mixed with water by the priests and used as a purifying agent. And anyone who became ceremonially impure by, and there were many ways to do that in the nation of Israel, just touching a dead body rendered you ceremonially impure, Entering the home of somebody who had died, the tent of someone who died, rendered you ceremonially impure. And so if you were ceremonially impure, then you could not worship at the tabernacle. You could not meet together with the congregation of Israel. You had to be separated until you were sanctified or rendered pure again. And the priest would take the ashes from the red heifer, mix it with some water, and sprinkle it on the person, and then that rendered the person now pure. And they could rejoin the the worship, they could rejoin the congregation of Israel. And that's what he's referring here to. The sprinkling restored the person, purified the person. It was a process of purification. And it did accomplish something. It ceremonially cleansed the person so they could be right with God and with God's people. We have to understand that the Old Testament sacrifices performed in true faith now and in true repentance, not by themselves, but in true faith and repentance, did accomplish something important for them. There was a cleansing that took place. The sins of the person were covered or atoned for until the time when Christ could come and pay for them forever. It was a temporary process until Christ came, but it was still real. The covering was temporary, but it was a real covering. It meant that they could be right with God again. Theologically, we say that the Old Testament sacrifices were efficacious, but they were not expiatory. Now hang with me, all right? Efficacious means that those Old Testament sacrifices accomplished benefits for the people. That's what efficacious means. It 
restored them to the congregation of Israel. He had restored them to the worship of God and done in true faith. It was a covering for their sins. But it did not take away sin. And that's expiation. It did not expiate sin. It did not change the conscience, you see. It didn't expiate or take away that sin. Only Jesus Christ's death could be expiatory, could take away sin. So the Old Testament sacrifices covered sin until the death of Christ could take away the sin. I like to use the analogy of credit cards and debit cards to explain this. A credit card covers a cost based upon a future payment, a payment that's going to be billed later. So the bill is paid, but it is paid on credit. A debit card covers a cost based upon a past payment. The money is in the bank to cover the cost. The bill is paid already. It needs no future payment to cover it. Think of the Old Testament believers this way. The Old Testament believers were saved on credit. They were saved on credit. The bill to be paid later. And who paid it? Jesus Christ. See. The sacrifices were like a credit card when done in faith. They plopped the credit card down and they said, I trust you, God, to cover my sins. And God said, I cover your sins until the bill will be paid. But Jesus Christ paid that bill too. Christ paid the bill on credit for them. We are saved by debit. He's already paid the bill. Their sins were covered until the time when Christ could pay for them. Our sins are taken away because Christ has already paid the the entire bill now. That's why the author can say in verse 14 then, how much more valuable is the blood of Christ? He offered himself as our substitutionary sacrifice for sin and his blood purifies our inner conscience from dead works to serve the living God. His blood does. This purification is not external, it is internal, it is not future, it is past, it's done. The blood of bulls and goats looked ahead to the coming blood of Christ for final payment. So Christ's blood has made that payment for you and for me. It's important to say this, all right, that the blood of Christ makes the payment for the sins of everyone from Adam onward. There's no other payment for sin for anybody who ever lived, right? Abraham was saved on the basis of the blood of Christ. Now, he didn't know that at the time, but that's the payment. He was saved on credit by faith, but Christ is the only one who paid the debt for the sins of anyone who ever lived on the face of this earth by his blood sacrifice. There's only one payment for sin, and it's the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, a blood atonement was necessary to pay for that sin. Jesus had to die a violent, bloody death 
in order to be a sacrifice for sins because that's the way God decreed it. In other words, Jesus couldn't die by cancer or by a heart attack or any of those kinds of means. He had to die as a blood sacrifice. His blood had to be spilt to pay for sins because that's the way God ordained it. There is no other way to be right with God. Do you believe that? Not popular today, is it? No other way to be right with God. The blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins. So there is power in the blood of Christ. The ashes of the red heifer could not purify our consciences, but the blood of Christ can. He cleanses us from our dead works. What are dead works? What are dead works? Our dead works are, well, they're everything we do. (laughs) There are sinful actions, right? Our works, the things that we do, are useless. They're dead. They're fruitless. Our sins certainly are dead works. No matter how hard we try to be good, even our good works are useless and dead to make us right with God. All we do to try and be right with God, all of it, those things are dead works because they're tainted by sin. So we have to turn away or repent of our dead works. You look back at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 because this is not enough, is it? We do have to repent of our dead works, but that alone won't save us. Look back at chapter 6, verse 1. We've already covered this, but therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. The Old Testament Israelites knew all about repentance. Religious people know all about repentance. But repentance alone won't make us right inside. Many people try to clean themselves up. I've heard people say, you probably have too, I'll come to church when I get my life cleaned up. I'll come to God when I'm okay again, you know, when I got everything in order again. (laughs) I gotta tell you, it's all dead works, it's useless. It won't work. That's not the way to come to God. How do you come to God? The hymn says it, just as I am. It's the only way to come to God. We can never clean ourselves up, no matter how hard we try. I mean, it sounds right, religiously, you know, make some spiritual resolutions. Man, I'm going to get it together. I'm going to be right. I'm going to be good. I'm going to put my life in order. But it's not the way to come to God at all. It's religion. And the, pro- the problem is that when we do those spiritual resolutions, it's, it's like constantly repenting of dead works, isn't it? And the process is never done. That's the problem, because you can't make yourself perfect. George Hartseff had to go to jail for 60 days for refusing to clean up his own backyard. 
He was warned. City officials had been asking him to do a little cleaning since 2000. Court action to ensure compliance was taken in 2002. 2007, authorities gave him 30 days to clean out the boats, crab pots, vending machines, and other assorted debris that littered his Maryland yard. When he failed to do so, he was sentenced to 60 days in prison. Hartsuff and his lawyer insist they're doing their best to tidy things up. They've already hauled away four 30-yard dumpsters filled to capacity. Still, city officials and authorities are fed up. This cycle will keep going until the property is cleaned up, says county spokesman Tracy Reynolds. The site would get cleaned a bit, and it got messy again. It was never brought into compliance. Spiritually, that's the problem with religion, isn't it? It's never brought into... We we just can't bring ourselves into compliance. Oh, we clean it up. We get our act together for a little while. We look pretty good, right? But soon the mess just starts accumulating all over again. Soon the stuff of life just gets back in there. Because it's all dead works. And we never get compliant with God. So the point here, the gospel, the good news is, stop trying to clean it all up. It's all dead works. Stop trying to fix it. You'll never get there. And ask Christ to clean you up by his blood. It's not our works that save us. It is His work that saves us. So you trust him to purify your conscience from all those dead works. But even that's not the end, is it? Do you notice what the verse said? His blood cleanses your conscience from dead works. What? To serve the living God. See, there's another side. He cleans us up from our dead works to serve the living God. We are changed by the blood of Christ so we can begin serving the living God. The transformation is real, but the process is not instantaneous, is it? God cleans us up from all those dead works, but the process of serving Him is a lifetime process. The power is in the blood to transform us. And God tells us this in his word, that we have everything we need by the power of God to to be changed and to change our lives. And that process takes place over life. But it is a process of becoming what he wants us to become by the power of the blood of Christ that cleanses us and helps us in that direction. It is all by grace, but it is a grace that encourages us then to live for Him. It is a grace that changes our lives. In his best-selling book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, shares the story of a woman in his congregation who was learning how the grace extended through Christ's work on the cross can actually be more challenging to us than religion. She had come from a very religious background. And as he began to share with her the gospel, and she started coming to church, she had never heard the distinction made between grace and works. 
She had always heard that God accepts us only if we're good enough for him. That was the message that she had learned growing up in religion and her religious life. And now he was saying, it's not that. It's God's grace that saves you, and you trust his grace. And she said that the new message was scary. It was scary. He asked her why it was scary, and this was her reply. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved totally by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. I think she got it. I think she got it, don't you? Redemption means he bought us. He owns us. It's all his. He does it. But now we're his too. We are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He paid an infinite price for you and for me to cleanse us, to take it all away, all that dead works, and to lead us to serve him. But now we're his. He has paid for all our past. He promises all our future. So he owns all our present. That's what Christianity is about right there. That's the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the cross. Pastor Steve Yeshek, Crystal Lake, Illinois, lost his sister Judy after a five-year battle with cancer. She was a woman who, as Steve described her, was a party animal, a big drinker with a self-contented lifestyle. She was someone everybody loved because she exuded the thrill of life. When Steve tried to share Jesus with her, with his sister over the years, she would laugh it off. Forget it. I'm not interested in that stuff. And keep partying. But at the age of 44, her world came crashing in. She was diagnosed with cancer. Then she learned that her husband also had cancer. And adding to the devastation of those two blows... She found out that her husband was having an affair and he announced he didn't love her anymore and he left her. And it was in that moment at rock bottom that she began to ask some eternal questions. And she prayed to receive Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. From that time on until her death, Jesus and his word and purpose became her number one priority. The blood of Christ changes us, you see. Number one priority. She entered into her Christian life with the same gusto that she had lived her party animal life. And she wanted everybody to know Jesus Christ. She boldly shared her faith even as she was undergoing surgery after surgery even as she prayed for a miraculous healing from God. And then she came to understand that the greater miracle for her would be if her friends 
and her family and her loved ones came to know Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. Even as she struggled for every breath, she talked her way out of the hospital about ten days before her death so she could be baptized in church and publicly proclaim her faith in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Judy invited everyone from the hospital to come to her baptismal service. Friends, loved ones, and under the Holy Spirit's anointing, she stood and urgently shared her own personal testimony at her baptism. Her 84-year-old father came to faith in Christ that night and joined her in baptism, along with her ex-husband, a number of nieces, a college roommate who was a New Age cultist, her aunt, her sister, and others. Ten days later, Judy died. Even still, Steve said, more people came to Christ. When Steve read the message, she had written him a message for her funeral service. And when he read her message at her funeral service, another 100 people came to know Christ as their personal Savior. Now that is the power of the cross to change lives, folks. Father, help us. Help us to point people to your cross your son who died on that cross, and his blood that not only rearranged our lives, not only purified our consciences, but enabled us to serve you, the living God. Take us and use us by the power of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, this week. In his name, amen.